0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Before we get to this week's show, I want to do something that I normally do at the end of the show, which is to tell you all about Off Camera and all the ways that you can interact with us and get in touch with us. Because usually we do that at the end, and I think maybe some of you are turning off the show when I get done talking to the guest. So I know you wouldn't want to miss out on this valuable information. So here it is. Off Camera is a podcast, and it's also a television show, and it's also a magazine. So if you haven't been to offcamera.com yet, you may not know what you're missing. First off, I am pleased as punch that you're listening to the podcast. And if you haven't subscribed to that yet, take a minute, go to iTunes, subscribe to the show, and that way you'll never miss a new episode being dropped into your inbox automatically. And also, while you're there, if you leave us a rating and a review, that helps more people find the show. Now, if you haven't yet seen our television show, I urge you to go to offcamera.com or to DirecTV. We're on each week on DirecTV's audience network. And you can find us on channel 239. And we're also on AT&T's U-verse. So that's a great way to watch the show every week. But if you don't have those services, you can go to offcamera.com and sign up for our television subscription service. What that is, is for $4.99 a month, you can have access to our entire archive of shows. That's over 220 shows and counting to be watched on any device as many times as you want. And it's a great deal. And it's only $4.99 a month. So you can see what you've been listening to and I urge you to check that out. And you can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And as you might know, I'm a photographer as well. And my Instagram feed is full of behind the scenes pictures from this very show. With each guest that comes on, I take them into the photo studio and we do a portrait session. And sometimes we do something really simple and sometimes we do something really elaborate, but it's a great way to check in and see what's going on here at Off Camera each week. So if you haven't followed my Instagram, check out Sam Jones Pictures because it's a great way to get deeper into the show. You can also send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. I love to give out bad advice. I love to receive recipes, guest suggestions, criticism. If something's on your mind, send me an email. So that's the way to get in touch with us. That's what we do with the show. So take a minute, go to offcamera.com and take a deep dive into what we're doing. Now on with the show. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with musician and author Liz Fair. Liz Fair introduced herself to the music industry in the 1990s with her bold first record, Exile in Guyville. As a side note, I bought that record the day it came out, and I happened to be in New Jersey when she played one of her first shows ever at Maxwell's in Hoboken, and I was hooked. She made a great record, and I've been following her as an artist ever since. But you know, rock and roll was traditionally dominated by men, especially back then. But Liz forged her own path to success, despite the loneliness it entailed. She used her art to express her feelings about sexuality, gender, and politics. As she says, I had a sense that if I wanted to make my artistic dreams come true, I was going to be on my own. I knew I would be going against the grain. To this day, Liz unapologetically speaks her mind, and with the recent release of her memoir, Horror Stories, we get a glimpse of the human being behind the art, and we get to go behind the scenes into the experiences that shaped her. Her remedy for the hopelessness she felt after the 2016 election was to write a brutally honest account of her life. She says, I decided to put something out that was as true as I could make it. I could expose myself and make myself truly vulnerable in order to plant a flag for honesty. Liz joins off-camera to talk about rebelling against the beautiful lie that was her suburban upbringing, her quest to untangle who she actually is versus the person she's perceived to be, and why getting up on stage never gets any easier. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Liz. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I've been a fan of yours a long time, and I actually got your first record right when it came out um, and was aware of you, you know, as you made records and thought I knew you just based on the music you were putting out, and then you wrote this book recently called Horror Stories, and I realized I didn't know you at all, and it's fascinating to get a different perspective from inside an artist's experience. Because, right off the bat in the prologue, you say, "My songs have been stories that are like diary entries and ways to express my feelings and look at my feelings and And the book itself is incredibly confessional and incredibly private. And I wondered what the impetus was for deciding to write that confessionally about things that you never had you never had an obligation to tell anybody.
1: And yet, at the same time, I meet so many people that tell me their personal stories because of my music. And I have been um, lucky enough to hear from fans that really have carried me through some of the darkest times of their life and used me as like a friend or a comfort or some kind of sense of that. I'm there for them, my music is there for them and then I speak in a way to the things that they can't speak about. And I think I've always carried that with me from the very beginning as a sense of obligation that people come to me looking for some kind of sense of not being alone or that they are seen or heard or felt. And music has been that way for me as well, Uh like my favorite artists. So I think that I've always had a sense ever since I put out Exile in Guyville that people were looking to me for more than just a great song or a great album. There was something more that they responded to in the way I presented myself and that they needed from me. And truthfully, I think that in the world there's too little of it. There's too little of a sense of, you know, we're in this together and that it's tough to be a human being, and that the plight of humanity is the same at every level. I think that's something that I like to speak about and make art about, just our humanity, our shared humanity, the things that we all have in common.
0: Yeah. Well, when you think about Exile Guyville, it was very frank discussions about your attitudes towards things, sexuality and politics and men, and, and you started out that way. And it, and it is interesting, I think, When you make your first statement as an artist, that's how people identify you Mm -hmm. right off the bat. And in your case, it was so confessional or so frank or honest or bold that I understand why you would be one of those artists where fans would feel like, oh, she knows me. So did you find writing that, you know, that it wasn't quite what you originally thought it was going to be and you were going to have to look a little deeper?
1: I knew I was going to have to look deeper. And I had a very frank conversation with um, one of my managers who pointed out that none of us really know how long we have on earth. And was I making the art or music that I would want to be making if it was the last thing I ever left behind? And it just kind of This alignment, I clicked into a different alignment. I hate feeling powerless. I hate feeling like I can't do anything about the things that bother me. And the 2016 election, what was happening in the country made me feel that way. And I thought, here's what I can do. I can put out something that is as true as I can make it to the best of my recollection, and I can say what it meant to me, and I can expose myself and make myself truly vulnerable almost as a way of planting a flag for honesty and saying as i sat and shouted at the television you liar you abominable human being what would that be like if that you know would i if the pointing finger was pointed at me would i would i recognize my portrait and what they were accusing me of like how right. true to my character have i been all the time and it just started all these interesting questions in a real honest um, feeling like I needed to do this. I needed to say what it had been like for me to be on Earth as myself
0: right now. You know, you say something in the book. You say our flaws and our failures make us relatable, not unlovable. And I got the sense that that's been your big education or your big quest is to learn that for yourself before you could tell other people.
1: Yeah, very much so. I think that kind of exploration is what you should be doing at midlife, almost taking stock of how far you've come. You have wisdom to offer, but you also have questions that remain, that linger in your life that may be kind of universal, these questions about what, what is worthwhile, you know, am I the person I think I am, and how did I get to be the person that I am? Like what events along the way really truly shaped me?
0: Right. Well, you know, I also get the sense with the book that often your journey was pretty solitary or pretty lonely. Like, you didn't have a band that you came up with, and you didn't have a manager at the beginning. And there are scenes in the book where you're lost in a snowstorm, and you can't get back to your hotel, and your phone dies. And that kind of prevails through the book. It prevails in your relationships and and in your musical career and, and the business dealings. You know, and even being a woman in the 90s in a male-dominated rock business, I I just wonder if you had that sense that you were on your own from a young age.
1: I had a sense that if I wanted to do the artistic, if I wanted to make my artistic dreams come true, I was going to be on my own. I had a very early sense that I would be going against the grain. I would be outside the channels that were laid out for me that would have been an easier ride. But I think I grew up not lonely but having a very strong sense of self so i had a sense that i could make a decision different than what the rest of the group was going to do and i think i chose that and have all the all along the way seen the points of entry or exit where everyone was doing something different than i was and really longed to join them but feeling like i've gone too far down the path that what i do you can't mean? I don't think I can fit back into society the way... Like, I've I've busted out all the, role, the roles that were given me.
0: And did that happen early, like yeah, high school? Yeah, it
1: did. I can remember. We didn't move a lot, but we moved enough that I've been new a couple of different places. And you have to rely upon yourself in those circumstances. You have to dig deep and find some kind of, like, selfhood right. that you know to be you and that you can... Introduced to people and that they can get to know you. So I think I, I always had that. Like, But in terms of music, s- junior, senior year of high school, I felt like I'd been such a good student and such a good girl and done everything I was supposed to do. And I didn't feel like it was going to pay off. I didn't feel like the world was going to actually reward that. I have sort of an allergic reaction to covering up what I'm feeling or it bothers me I mean there was a period when I did do a lot of lying right around that point a lot of lying yeah after senior year of high school I stopped going to class you (laughs) did yeah I did I just kind of I I remember thinking that this just wasn't gonna it's like the John Mayer song like I wanna run through the halls of my high school like there isn't a there there, in some sense. You reach the cusp of adulthood and you realize it's kind of just a strong suggestion. Do this, it'll be easier,
0: because life's hard. So you saw, you saw the I whole saw, thing as a I little s- bit of a construct.
1: Yes, I saw the construct. It was like taking the red pill or blue pill in The Matrix. Right. I just I couldn't go back, and I've never been able to go back, and I've tried, and some of my biggest failures are when I try to conform and it's just not right for me. Do you think
0: there's some disconnect with people, especially then, the way your philosophy and your brain worked and your appearance? Yes. And where you were from, because I know you were from a fairly affluent suburb, and there was an expectation, and, and sort of like just a a smooth path for a lot of people that they never questioned
1: I feel like it's still going on I can't tell you how many times I'm like in a time tunnel you know and you're watching like other lives you could have led you're like oh god I would have liked to have had that one or like oh not that one too you know you just keep passing them knowing And you know, in the beginning I think I would have taken an off ramp and tried to live that life and now I just kind of know that I can't
0: that you just aren't built that way I'm not built that way
1: then comes this kind of anger at the the sense that we're all just supposed to go and lock step down these channels, but they're really walking us off a cliff in some senses, which they're not. I mean, if I could go back, I probably would be like, just stay in school. just. <laughs> no,
0: but I understand that. I understand so, like, that feeling then of— So the
1: rebellion period of that kind of music, Yeah. then I was all about that. Then it was just the counterculture that completely— that's where I wanted to be, that's what I wanted to work in, that's who I wanted to be seen as, that's, that's the chops I wanted to earn to be right. like that kind of outsider making amazing art, being more truthful about what life is really like, that's what it was.
0: Do you remember the first time you wrote a song where you're like, that's good, I like that, I want to do something with it? In terms of professional, just in terms of the first song yeah, you wrote, yeah. High school. Where you're like, That's I mean,
1: I was—I used to try to write a Christmas Carol. I was really obsessed with writing like a classic Christmas Carol. Yeah. Like in high school, I would write. I can see, I would fill my room with like colored lights for the holiday. Then I'd sit up in there and I'd be writing this poetry and I can see it with all like the yellow and the blue and the red and the pink. And I'd be writing these bubble letters, my poem that I'd just written. Yeah, I can remember that. That would be a first song.
0: Wow. First
1: blush of like, yeah, I want to be a songwriter.
0: It's very hard to square that with the material on your first record.
1: (laughs) 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 I don't know that the book is going to lend that much more clarity to people that are trying. I'm I'm really feeling like it's just another iteration of the same person.
0: Hey, folks, let's take a little break from the conversation and talk about one of our sponsors this week, Native. Native makes safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. They create products with trusted ingredients and trusted performance. And they have 9,000 five-star reviews. And one of them is me, because a few months back, Native sent me a bar of their cucumber and mint deodorant, and I tried it, and I immediately loved it and ditched my old deodorant. And that's not just me saying this, because they're paying us to have their ad on the air. I've been wearing the same deodorant since I was a kid, and it was my dad's deodorant, and it was just sort of, you know, what I knew. And when I tried theirs, I liked the smell better, I liked the feel better, I liked the fact that there's no aluminum, parabens, and talc in it, and it's filled with ingredients found in nature, such as coconut oil, shea butter, and tapioca starch. Apparently, the tapioca starch absorbs wetness, and they never test on animals. So I just fell in love with this deodorant, and I love the smell. I'm a big cucumber and mint person. I eat cucumber and mint, I put it on my body, I like it. And the main point is, it works. Making the switch to aluminum-free deodorant does not mean having to sacrifice on product performance. And they have a wide variety of scents. In fact, I'm gonna try coconut and vanilla next, two of my other favorite scents that remind me of being on a Hawaiian vacation. They also have lavender and rose and eucalyptus and mint. And there's no risk to try because they offer free returns and exchanges in the United States. So try this new deodorant, try going native, Tell me what you think about it. Send me an email. I think it's great stuff, and I wear it every day. And the office is very happy about how nice I smell. And because I love Native so much and because they've been so kind to us, they're also going to be kind to you. They're giving a special offer to our listeners. They'll give you 20% off your first purchase just by visiting nativedeodorant.com and using the promo code OFFCAMERA during checkout. That's 20% off the first purchase using the promo code OFFCAMERA during checkout. So go native, and my prediction is you'll never go back. Now back to the show. It does seem like there's a lot of value being assigned in the book to behavior. And when you were not going to class, I can relate to that. That desire to do something different. But I'm sure your parents probably had a harder time relating to it. When <laughs> like You weren't going to school. like. Yeah, they what were, very... were the consequences of not showing up to class?
1: They were bad. There was an estrangement between my parents and me for a long time. like well, there was. Like, it wasn't severe,
0: but there was an estrangement. If there you had was... to pull out pieces of dialogue that came out of their mouth around that time, do you remember any... Any like this is what's going to happen. Young lady, or advice,
1: or... I think being uh, being called young lady was always dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that preceded something unpleasant. I was going to have to hear. I, hats off to them because they were extremely worried about me. They had no idea what was going on, um, and they kind of white knuckled that. They, they kind of loved me through it, and it
0: was hard for them. How did they love you through it?
1: They just kept telling me that I was loved and that no matter what I did, they would always love me and that, you know, they held me accountable for the things that I'd done wrong and kept trying to... I mean, that's when I really realized my security net. I had a vast security net that a lot of people don't benefit from in this culture. And it always stuck with me that that I should maybe do something with my life because... I had advantages that I didn't even know I had. I had security I didn't even know I had. And I was trying to kick through it as fast as possible. I was like, where's the outside of this maze? You know, how do I get out of this whole upbringing and this whole everything? And I just kept digging and tunneling. And it was it, as, you know, the school itself wasn't going to let me fail, they were going to pick me up and, give me tests outside of class there was Oh
0: really so there was a, there was a concerted effort to not to let, let you
1: yeah there was an absolute safety net there
0: What do you think your biggest struggle was in high school
1: Finding out who I was versus what I was perceived as and what I could do to make my life significant in some way make it mean something
0: was that was big, important.
1: That was important, but, I mean, you got to remember at that time I just wanted out. I wanted out of this beautiful, what I considered a lie at that time. I mean, like, we, I knew kids early who had serious troubles. Like, eating disorders were common. Suicide attempts were known about. Like, there was this pressure in this area to achieve a lot. Everyone knew from a very young age that you were to look great, behave properly and achieve great things. Like that was just the area. That and you had examples all around you of huge houses and people, right. you know, achieving this and there was a sense of inadequacy that you felt like do I really have what it takes and or inauthenticity about it. Right. Because not every family in the big house was happy and we knew it. We were over there. We knew that what the trappings that society said were gonna pay off and gonna be awesome were not always the case. There was no way to know if your house was small or big, whether you were happy or people were fighting inside that right. you know, domicile. Like it was just it was a real sense of, well then what is life about and where should I be looking for happiness and what does it take? And if if everything's telling you X Y Z will make you happy and this is what you should do and you see that that's basically a lie what do you do with that at a young age like where you have to invent your own sense of what a good destiny would be you know you have to search for your
0: vision quest I wonder what made you question that when it seems like a lot of your friends were only too willing to buy into that. And No, that.
1: no, 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 no. We were all smoking outside the dances, being like, God, yeah, it's Thomas, totally fucked up. Really? Like no question. We had that like goth unhappiness that, that did not show on the them, outside?
0: Most of them. They kinda... knew that
1: they were gonna do it because I think they had less imagination than I did. I had like flights of fantasy that like, well, why if someone's doing it out there, why can't I? You know, and right. they would just kind of look at it as like, Well, because X you know, you can't do that. So I think the more practical of my friends would never even dream of it. And I just had this enormous imagination and had grown up kind of running free in nature in a lot of ways, going to camp every summer. Like, I did have a sense that I was the kind of person that could and should go out there and try something original.
0: Well, take me to the period right before you started making Exile in Guyville because you went to school, you went to Oberlin, And you describe in the book that the time right before that was one of the toughest times in your life because you had left school, you'd moved to San Francisco for a year, you ran out of money, you were back at home. So what is the picture in your mind of those months or a year right before you got on your path and why it was so hard?
1: Partially because the mandate I'd set out for myself, like, oh, this system is a lie, get outside the system. I got outside the system. Right. And that wasn't great either. Like, I actually suddenly had to realize that, you know, shaking my fist at the North Shore of Chicago, life sucks in a lot of ways. And I didn't go off and make this meaningful life. I didn't do anything. I was just, I just made myself poor and isolated. That's all I'd done. So there's this also, this secondary fall from grace of the idealized version of what life outside the bubble would be like. You know, so then you're you're just sitting there kind of, well, that was a lie. Now this is a lie. Like, right. where is my truth? And, and are you
0: hearing from your friends and what they're doing? Oh, yeah,
1: they're taking, you know, they have these great jobs and they're dating and they're doing all this stuff. And I'm just sitting in kind of a squatter's apartment, <laughs> like, about to make great art you know Like, but I do think that that was a necessary process because it showed me that it was going to be hard work either way it was going to be a hell of a lot of hard work if I wanted to do anything or distinguish myself just as much hard work as it would have been to continue with straight A's at Nutrier High School just as hard as it would have been to go to Williams say if I'd gotten in and not messed up my senior year The hard work was still gonna happen, and I think at that point it was too late to to turn around and try to go to college again. All I had left was to do something, to put a challenge in front of myself like the best album ever made, Exile (laughs) on Main Street, you know, like, like the best album ever made, and so I was hungry to say this was not all for naught, this rebellious period, like it forged me.
0: Right. It seems like from the outside that you almost, this gestation period as an artist, you almost did it in secret. I mean, you mentioned Exile on Main Street and, and Exile in Guyville was sort of, you know, it, it became, the narrative became this is an answer to this record, this male-dominated patriarchy of rock and roll, the Rolling Stones, and, and you have an answer for it. And that was, the, that was the headline in all of the press about the record. But I got the sense that you sort of went into your bedroom by yourself and and made these songs without a lot of help, or without a lot of people knowing what was going on. Yeah, Is that, was that the case? That's true,
1: that's true. It's and just, you'd never I was, been in
0: bands and playing out? Or no, anything? not
1: at all, I was a visual artist. At that point I still thought of myself as a visual artist and I'd interned for Famous artists, and that had been my track since I was a little girl. I was gonna be a great visual artist. You know, that's. <laughs> I'm, I'm realizing what I'm doing wrong in this interview as I'm in the interview, First of all, I'm doing that thing that I hate more than anything, which is when you're kind of like, uh, 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 uh," your voice, my voice gets very strident and kind of like, I'm making, because honestly, what was I doing? I can tell you kind of what made me do what I did, but I was winging it for as long as I can remember. I've always been winging it. And I like adventure, and I like doing crazy stuff, I think th- there's more than just the real person is in the book. I don't even think the real person has really been even scratched. And I think we have so much more to share with each other about what our lives are like. And I'm fascinated by it. What do I ever turn on television or crack a book for? It's that that truth, that juicy, real, right. visceral, I was there. Because that's what I like. That's what I want to read about and see about is kind of the, I want to be taken on a journey through your life.
0: Well, that's one of the things that I remained really curious about after reading the book is what it felt like to make that transition from someone who in theory wanted to be this visual artist or wanted to do something that that felt right to you that wasn't anybody else's path and to actually manifesting that and having it occur. And that that moment when things change forever, when you go from, I'm alone in my bedroom trying to figure this out to, ooh, what did I do? And maybe you didn't even know what you did. <laughs> no. But that part's fascinating to me, you know? Like, uh, there you are, you're alone in your bedroom, you're making these songs. And, you know, from my perspective, the the normal path is you get a band and you go start playing little clubs and you get a following and you prove to a record company that you should sign us because we're already a thing. And you do But you're not a girl. Right. You're I'm missing a, girl a giant t- piece of this that.
1: because most guys were the ones in the bands. There were very few women in that scene altogether, either behind the scenes or in the bands. Very few women and if you hired a woman to be in your band, it's probably just one. This was not a world I was welcome in or that anyone was soliciting my um, entree into. This was not a world that even reflected me back at myself at all. So in my mind, music was just something, songs are just something I wrote in my bedroom because it's fun, and I know how, and I used to have to practice, and instead of practicing, I could be original. So it's like, if you wonder how... How to recreate the Liz Fair phenomenon? How do you do that? You you need to take a total outsider, and then because I messed up, I don't think I would have gone to Oberlin if I'd stayed on my track. But there was so much music there, so many things that happened in my life are what I made of the circumstances I found myself in. Right. Nothing that I planned out ever worked out exactly the way I thought it would. But I just had this imagination that just kept saying, but the next thing is going to be amazing. Like, you know, like there were no roadmaps and I threw a curveball out of left field and it captured the imagination of everybody. And it just, if you knew how much I'm winging it all the time, including right now, you just throw up your hands and walk away. Because the only thing I really have is the willingness to throw myself into the next thing that is unknown. No, I, just I throw myself into the outcome unknown. Outcome unknown? Let's do it.
0: (laughs) Cheers. You know, as someone who knocked on those doors for a long time, I also think that as much of an outsider as you were, I would never have thought to just pick the coolest indie label and call and say, do you want to put my record out? (laughs) (laughs) You know, without someone telling you how to do it.
1: What did Matador matter to me? You know, Bowie wasn't on Matador. Like, I was still looking at mainstream radio artists. So I just asked, what's the best indie label? Let's start there and go down till we find one, not really caring, it's not my world. I don't even like those guys at that point. I think they're all assholes. (laughs) I think they're like so self-important. They're in an echo chamber and I can see it because I don't come from that and this is my town. I'm, I'm in Chicago, I'm around them, but I don't really care what they think of me that much. I just know that they think they're all that and I feel like I have been writing songs for a long time. I could do this.
0: And you did. And I did it. That's what was fascinating to me, is that the record was so good, and to hear you say that you were just winging it, and Always. that you didn't know, like I'm sure you didn't imagine like, oh, if, if they put this out, I'm gonna have to go discuss the lyrical content.
1: I didn't know I was going to have to be on stage. Right. I put the record out without ever thinking that I would actually have to no, perform it. Can that really it? be
0: true? That I you're I promise like, that, it's true. That no one says at the label, like, well, once we put the record out, we're going to send you out on the road.
1: I think they thought it went without saying. Right. I don't think they thought they had to Did say Did you think
0: that. you could put the record out and then just have record sales and just stay home?
1: I didn't even care about the record sales. I just wanted to shut these guys up because I thought they were so obnoxious i was I was sick to death of men lecturing me about music really I can remember I tell the story of when the record had come out, and there was a wait time between when it <laughs> which might have been my fault because people were inviting me to come to Los Angeles like labels were like, "Come, you know, they were trying to sign me, which I was never going to leave, but I wanted the free trip to Los Angeles, so I was doing that kind of thing, so that right. probably delayed the Record coming out. Um, so it came out, and my roommate at the time, or my previous roommate, who'd been one of the mansplainers telling me about great music, and he did have great taste. All these guys had great taste. I benefited from their education. I just never asked for it. We were walking back from a lunch, and he just started laughing that real mirth that he had when he knew something bad was going to happen to me. And he was like, You know, you're going to have to play live now, don't you? And I'm just looking at him realizing in that instant that my whole life was going to be my worst nightmare. Like my entire job was going to be the thing that I would do almost anything to avoid. Which at any getting time. on stage. Getting on stage.
0: Okay. This is fascinating because I saw you in October of 93 and Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey, which I think had to have been one of the first shows. Probably. And the impression I took away was she's super punk rock because she like didn't talk to the audience and she just didn't look at anybody and she did her thing. And reading your book, I was like, oh no, she was terrified.
1: Terrified. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And immediately I changed direction um, and began to prepare, as my good North Shore upbringing would have told me to do. Right. But it was just like being a fraud right at the same time that you're newly minted as legitimate. It was this, and I've never known any other career feeling. Other I'm than
0: feeling like an imposter from the beginning.
1: Both. More authentic than other people, and equally much an imposter. Those two things follow me everywhere. I'm just like that is my. I don't even fight it anymore. So it kind of sucks, but it you got to wear what you are, you know. And that's I try things that, as my mother says, if she's not qualified to do it, you can better believe that's the next thing she's going to do. Because I'm curious, I'm fascinated. I grew up kind of free, and so. If that's interesting, and I've never done that, I'd like to try that, or if that's, I like that stuff. But then I like that a little adrenal- your job. Yeah, and I've been trying to run away from that for a lot of my career as well, like until I kind of mastered it, it. That was a long, hard road of acceptance that this would be my job, is to get up in front of people. Never had any interest in it. Never sat there looking at a stage and
0: thought, I want to be up there. Hey folks, let's take a break from the conversation so we can hear from this week's sponsor, Quip. The holiday shopping season is here, and this year, your gift can start next year's good habit with Quip. Quip is something that's sure to put a smile on everyone's mouth because it's dental care that people actually want to use every day. Now, I can personally attest to this. I just did a two-week stint in Nashville, and I brought my Quip toothbrush with me, including my Quip travel case and my Quip toothpaste, and I was so happy to be traveling and I had my own toothbrush that I loved. The travel case sticks neatly onto the mirror so my toothbrush isn't on some gross hotel counter and the toothpaste is small and fits in my travel bag and I can carry it on. They just have the perfect system and that's why it's the perfect thoughtful and practical gift with an electric toothbrush, refillable floss and toothpaste all intentionally designed to make good habits simple. The Quip electric toothbrush has sensitive sonic vibrations and a timer with 30 second pulses to guide your routine. And the Quip floss dispenser has pre-marked strings, so you always use the right amount. Plus, Quip delivers the brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills every month. They even throw in a battery. It is a no-brainer to use this toothbrush. So join over 3 million happy customers and check everyone off your gift list right now with Quip. Here's what you do. Just go to getquip.com slash off-camera to save on gift sets and to get your first refill free with a refill plan. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash off-camera. That's getquip.com slash off-camera. Now back to the show. You know, I was in this band for a while in LA at the time when uh, like we would play a lot of shows with Weezer and That Dog, and I remember once getting up on stage. The audience was all way back there, and there was all and I was like, "Everyone, come forward! You know, we're not going to start playing until people come forward." And I make some move, and my guitar strap breaks, and my guitar falls, <laughs> hits my feet, and then falls off the stage down onto the ground. And no one goes over to pick it up. I have to climb off the oh stage God. and pick it up. And then I'm like, okay, we better start playing. I start playing, and the guitar is completely out of tune because it is fallen on the ground, and it didn't occur to me in my moment of complete humiliation. So then we just confirm what's going on in my head, which is like we suck and they hate us, (laughs) and like it's actually happening. (laughs) And that was after I don't know 50 shows of me doing this. So I'm curious if there's a if there's a moment in an early show that sticks out to you as especially rough?
1: Uh, someone, I think it was my first Lounge Act show, and I was yeah, absolutely of. terrified, dreading it. There's no dread like you know your worst fear, dread. And someone said, hey, take a shot of whiskey. It'll calm your nerves. And that was the first and last time I ever took any substance before approaching stage, because when I got up on stage to play my songs, I couldn't remember them. I oh, couldn't no. remember how to play them or Is the it words. It was just one shot of whiskey. It was just one <laughs> shot of whiskey, but like it, it was. Thank God that happened to me because I probably would have like major problems with drinking right now. But it just it it was a very quick like mm, we're not going to be doing that anymore. Just standing there with nothing to say, and no memory, and no way to get back out of this situation, I just stopped mid-song twice, uh, and just horrible. said I don't remember how to play this, and tried to not, and I, was, I only had like five songs at that point that I knew how to play like very well. I would write songs the night before going into Brad's and record them that way. Like, I'm standing on stage with my band trying to remember the songs that I wrote in May, and recorded because I'm still an artist. I still don't get it that I'm a musician. I still think it's like, oh, it's on the record, good, done. You know, I do my little solo thing and then it's on the record. I don't think about it. And then I have to learn them all for tour, my own songs that I wrote, it's funny.
0: Is the stage fright still there?
1: If you leave me off the road for too long, it will be there in full force. It I well, t- I can't go off the road for too long, otherwise, There will be huge floods of tears, massive anxiety. It happened in 2018, I think, on my way to the, um, what was that? Hollywood Forever Cemetery, first show as a duo set Sobbing on the way there, just sobbing. Feeling like there's no way I can do this. It feels so unnatural to me, in one sense, to get up on stage, and at the same time, I can speak in front of the UN probably very calmly and naturally. On the other hand, there's a side of me that has been forced into this that never wants to be on stage.
0: Does it ever make you question whether you picked the wrong profession?
1: Always, and constantly. And it, it isn't until I have, of late, through social media, gotten to know all the young women that are doing what I do, and seeing them, Makes me want to do my job. It makes me want to perform. It makes me proud of what I've done, and I forget about myself, and I think about being part of something larger than myself. And then I'm incredibly peacock. Proud. You, have a,
0: you have a reason. Yeah, have and, a, yeah. I, and
1: I have a, I have a community. Yeah. I just needed a scene. I needed a community of people.
0: After that record came out, I got the sense that there was, in your home life from the book, uh, in, in going back, and I think you went back for a funeral or something, that. It was almost like you had a scarlet letter on in your own community when you came back because of the explicit nature of your songs. I listened to Flower this morning. I haven't heard it in a long time.
1: Can you imagine in 1993? You know, like, well, that's the crazy thing. What? It's still pretty,
0: you know, it's still pretty like, whoa, you know? And, and I encourage everybody watching this right now to go listen to Flower. But what was that like to sort of have to, like, did it give you like this free pass to never have to live up to what they think I am. Yeah. Did that just shatter that for you?
1: It shattered that for them in a, in a, in a way, initially. And I had the sense that what I did in my art realm was separate from who I was as a person. It was a free expression zone. It was a place to say things and do things that were provocative, that were challenging, that investigated things you didn't have answers to. Yeah. I was raised with a visual art background and had majored in studio art, art history, interned for my idols, fully on that track. And that means something different. A painting, you can still be shocking and provocative, and I was aware of them, but they were also intelligent people that would get up right. and explain their art and talk about the history and the context. You paint a vagina. But rock and roll <laughs> did not allow me that contextualization. Rock and roll was like, thank you bam, you know, and that's who you are, and it's totally confessional. And I think people really didn't have any idea that I could be making that kind of music and also have, like, sort of a meta level about it. It was just supposed to be some girl who had serious emotional problems and probably substance issues who just... Blech, confessed it. They never saw the art making of it, which right. I had put so much they into. They underestimated you. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't say that since they lauded me so thoroughly. I think I, they, I know, they, I, sorry, they both I, the overestimated critics, and underestimated Right. Me.
0: You got lauded in the, in the critical space, but probably underestimated by it, a lot of the people you're yes. talking about, your parents' yes. friends. Yes. My
1: and, level of sophistication in terms of what I was doing was greater than they realized. Matador knew it. Anyone who had contact with me knew that we were all intelligent people doing that there was a self awareness. But the public at large was just like and I never expected the public at large to hear this. I truly thought it would be this is the era of like fanzine and little little outfits, mom and pop outfits that would put out music that like a handful of people would hear. Nobody knew who Big Black was on the North Shore, you know, like but I did. And That made me feel cool and different and special. So I thought I was moving in a very small pool of people that would get what I was doing. Shocking was in, if you just look at like early Nirvana and the journaling that he was doing, like shocking and, you know, that kind of stuff was super prevalent in a very small scene. So I thought I was making music for this context and then I had to wear it in a larger sense.
0: It must have been hard to have that kind of scrutiny right out of the gate when you're just trying to figure the thing out. It was horrible.
1: I hated that first year. Really? I was miserable
0: the whole time because well, I just well, how would you deal I didn't understand it? what was you, happening.
1: Oh. I did, I would I not my imagination had not encompassed that. And I had a lot of bravado. I I see interviews that I gave back then and I'm like, "So, Matador, you want me to make you a million dollars?" I don't know where that came from, but I didn't think it would really happen. And that sucked too, because here I was stuck in another lie. The lie of being kind of a grubby downtown chick, which I kind of was. I was acting that way, but there was more to me. So then the sort of North Shore past that was legitimately my childhood became this thing, this inauthenticity to them. Right. So they minted me as this sort of grubby downtown girl, and yet this whole then then they look at me if they find out about my North Shore upbringing and what my life was and actually like, like. you're the liar. Yeah, like you're the liar. And so there's this, I keep trying to dodge and duck and get out of like lie nets, but I keep putting myself back into them inadvertently. And then.
0: There's a layer on top of that, which is that you're a woman in a male dominated business that people have said the music business uh, makes the movie business look honest by comparison. Oh yeah, it's awful. And, you know, in your book, you list, I don't know, a dozen different instances of bad behavior, assault, and sexual harassment in your life, both previous to making records and post. And, I mean, one of the early examples is you went to a photo shoot and you didn't have a manager at the time, and the photographer was trying to pressure you to do something semi-nude or provocative, and you didn't have any, anybody in your corner to help you deal with the situation. And, and it was like you were this young girl, kind of with all these perceptions, like you say, trying to avoid the line that, and then you're being asked to do things and and you don't know how to say no. and it must have been really hard.
1: It was really hard. It was very hard. and actually, after friends read that book, a number of people called up, like you didn't include this one. you, you know, they knew about there's tons more. like that's just there's tons more. What Truthfully. was the effect
0: on you of putting all of those things together?
1: Well, have you noticed how I keep getting strident in this interview? I keep, like, coming forward with my little toughy self. But then I you can lay back, too. I, I'm, I, yes, I try because my actual self isn't that strident person. I was a very kind of introverted, happy girl most of the time. And the business makes me push forward something that isn't totally myself And it's so exhausting as a woman who fits a certain type to constantly be negotiating something which I don't think about. I know when I feel sexy because I'm on a date and there's chemistry and my body is aroused. That's what I know. But we grow up in a culture where women are mostly, or I grew up in a time when women were to be looked at. That's what we were. That was the value. That was the power. Objectified. Yeah. So, how you never, I've never negotiated it in a clean line. Sometimes I act more sexy so that I can f- take it away from men. So I can say, well, I'm going to decide what I think is sexy and, and embody that because I don't feel like my sexuality should be yours to play with. However, I equalize it or turn up the volume or whatever. So it has been a case study in like step by step, okay that's too much, that's not enough, that's not me, that's not this, stop it, push back, push back. It is the most consistent feature of my life and it's much, much better as I get older but that's almost kind of sad. And I don't think it's just because I'm older because I still get hit on a lot. It's more just like um, I can't be used as easily. And I'm probably going to clap back afterwards. And there's going to be some kind of sense of right. responsibility. So it's like, that's a lot of work. Let's go over here. That whole thing has sucked nonstop. And it was before music and it was during music and it was after music. And I don't even know what to say about it because yeah. it's just... Well, it I think you
0: actually wrote about it so poignantly and so revealingly in the book. And I think one of the most revealing sentences in the entire book is that you said that even writing it now... You were afraid that it might have ramifications to to think talk about these incidents. I think it will. For your future professional things. Yes. And my question after reading that chapter in the book was, what made you keep going? Like, when the, I mean, it's funny starting back with the Chicago, um, you know, the advertising executive who was who was inappropriately trying to like put his hand on your ass in a photo shoot, all the way up to the record executive that. Asked to pay you 5000 a month to be his concubine. Like, you know, I read the litany of what she, the gauntlet that you ran, and I'm like, what made her keep, like, what, what why didn't it kill your enthusiasm?
1: It does to a certain extent, but like, is it that different in any other profession? Like, it doesn't matter what profession you pick. This is bigger than any one profession, it's pretty much everywhere. And the truth is, there's a lot of great guys, you know, the nine guys out of the 10 that are not doing this. Are great, so why wouldn't I continue? You know, there's no place I can be to avoid it. I don't know when the next guy is gonna be, because he's just one in ten, but all it's right. everywhere. So where would I go? What would I do differently? I would just stop and hide behind some thing which would limit my life and limit all the young women behind me. But the nine guys out of the ten that are just living their lives and not doing these things are inspiring and there are people I admire and they're people I want to be like or I have a crush on or you know, so the nine out of ten is what kept me going.
0: There was certainly some hopelessness about relationships in in your book, and I think that you were very brave or very foolish. Uh, no not foolish, but I feel like you felt like you had an obligation for total honesty once you started, and and you shared that you had an affair in the middle of your marriage, and you have those fears that we all have occasionally through life, which is, maybe I'm unlovable, maybe I'm the last single person, maybe the world I've created for myself doesn't include me finding a relationship, and then you said something very specific, which is that you'd created something where they don't want you as yourself because the the Liz Fair part threatens them and the suburban mom like like you're in this you're in this no man's land.
1: Yeah. Like a no-win situation. Yeah. Which may or may not be true, but it feels like that sometimes that if they get to know me as the person that the person who wrote the book. Yeah. Then the Liz Fair part is a lot to take in. And there's a sense of like why would you ever you know we're together now why would you continue to be provocative or shocking or try to do these artistic things so the liz fair becomes too much if they're attached to the private person right and if they're attached and attracted by the liz fair part the private person and the boring everyday stuff that they can get from any woman feels like a chore so it's it's hard to find someone that can make the space for me to do both, it's also age appropriate, legitimately single, and I'm attracted to him, and he's attracted to me, that's a lot of stuff.
0: No, I, I, I just got the sense that that, I that feel part of your life's been really, really hard. That has
1: been, yeah. I have had too many relationships where at some point my public world isn't thrown back in my face as an accusation.
0: Yeah, that part to me is sad because I feel like, isn't that what we all want in par- as partners? We want someone who's continually challenging themselves and looking for growth and trying to express themselves as not just artists, but express who they really are. And the ones who are good at it are gonna do it on a bigger level or bigger stage. But I, it's just, it's one of those things where you read about it and you're like, that can't be true. They're-
1: I mean, I don't think it's even I don't even feel that sorry for myself. I just feel like shit. Like, I've kind of gotten myself into a bit of a bind here. Right. I feel like I have to choose one or the other.
0: Well, there is this sense that like, like having to step on stage without really realizing that that's yeah. what was going to happen. It makes sense that you say I've sort of been winging it But yet, your winging it has had such massive consequences, (laughs) both in success, but also in in lifestyle, that I would feel like sometimes you're probably having an out-of-body experience or something like that.
1: (laughs) It's strange. It's a very strange, yeah. Every mark you make on the canvas is less white space left. Yeah. You know, everything has the choices. I was talking to this, like, a group of women who were bemoaning the lack of, you know, or their difficulty in relationships. And I was saying but every choice we've made has led to that. You know, it may not be fair, but life was never fair. So it's just I've made choices all the way along the line that have consequences. They just do. Sure. And
0: I could think of worse consequences,
1: but it does suck, yeah.
0: It never stops being a struggle, does it?
1: You can have everything you ever wanted and be miserably happy and feel like nobody cares about you. You can be incredibly unfortunate and lose your job at the same time that your landlord wants to rent to someone else and have just met the love of your life. Like, there's just no getting around that we all want basically the same things. And across cultures, across ages, I think we just, like, I miss that we had Greek mythology once upon a time. Because even though it was there's
0: ridiculous,
1: there were just like, there's a sense of like, well, this is how life is. And right, nowadays, right. we don't make those stories anymore. And I think that's what, was it Scorsese who was bemoaning cinema, the loss of cinema? Yes. We're not telling ourselves, we're so overcapitalized that it's just like get the bodies in the seats, I don't care what does it, reboot it, blow it up, you know. Yeah. Take her clothes off, get them in the seats. Like We're just trying to make success. And we've lost this sense of the stories that we used to tell each other and tell ourselves about what to expect in life and the kind of things that go wrong, and the kind of things that go right. And Yeah, we've yeah. Lost our- And I
0: think there is some sort of expectation that everything could be delivered to us now. And I don't just mean Postmates and drugs. I mean, we can have personality and friendship and, and love and sex and everything delivered to us. And and I, I feel bad for anyone who sort of buys into that idea that, that you know, we are in a demand culture, because we're not. And there's no happiness in a demand culture.
1: No, there isn't. Yeah, I agree.
0: You made a decision, um, maybe around, after the record you made in 2010, to get off the road and stay home. I think you said this in your book that when you're raising a teenager to those years when they go off to college, that's the time when they really need you in the house. And you made a choice to get off the road and actually take sort of a semi-normal job writing music for film and TV, right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, after, I think a lot of people get in the trap of, they have some critical success, they have some acclaim, you're traveling the world as a rock star, that is too enticing to give up. And I was very impressed that you were able to take a step back from that, in service of raising your son and and not traveling. And I was curious if, if you learned something about yourself from doing that.
1: In one sense it wasn't hard because I've always found, and I think there are exceptions to this rule, there are a handful of lucky people, but like, a lot of times the entitlement celebrities get is to make up for the crap they have to go through. Like a lot of times what you're doing is totally awful and not glamorous and a chore and a grind and it's awful. So they kind of throw some celebrity entitlement at you and you're like, thank you. You know when you're like, uh... <laughs> Who's that in Trading Places when he's got his salmon in his beer? Oh, Dan Dan Aykroyd. and he's like, (laughs) you know, you kind of take your celebrity entitlement because it's going to make up for the crap they just asked you to walk through. But what I did notice was the submersion of the ego where it's not about me in that room. If they don't like the music and they don't feel this is working, I'm there to make their vision come true. So that was a good education in terms of, what it's like to work with me for someone else. Right. And I can't say that I'm always great about remembering that because when it gets intense, which it always does, I say that the music business, it's like all or nothing. I cannot find a balanced way to make money in the music business. It's always either we're totally pushing for the top, or no one's even calling you back. They're kind of there for the big ride. Um, I would love to find that middle ground at this point. I also don't
0: know if there's a balance when it comes to an artistic pursuit. Maybe
1: not. But one of the things about parenting that I think is so important is you will find yourself living a life you never signed up for. You will find yourself saying things and doing things that don't feel like you at all. And you will be met with someone who's totally ungrateful for everything that you're sacrificing for years, <laughs> for years. Yeah. and there will be suckage that goes on longer than you can even possibly imagine it could go on and I think it's so it's been so good for me to love him through that like all the stuff like to just stay with it I almost feel like the tail end of a train that's careening off court, like speeding and you're just you're whipped really far and you're like, just hold on you know like and that's how it has felt to get through so many things of parenting. Like can you hold on through this? And my answer to myself has always been, you must. You must. Yeah. And that is where the, the real love and the real growth comes from. Sometimes I think the kids are testing to see if, you're just, if they can shake you off.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think they're dying for you to prove that you won't be shaken off.
1: I think ultimately, even if they wanna kill you in the interim.
0: Yeah. Is it weird now to be on the other side of it? I know your son is out of college, and uh, does it feel like now you have your life back you know what I mean. In a
1: way, I it do does. feel like I got my life back. You know, the minute he graduated high school, I really felt like the the early morning service of like breakfast yeah. was done. <laughs> I feel like I graduated as much as he did. You For know? sure, yeah. I wanted my kid back from the school system. I really wanted him back as just a person without this agenda that I was constantly making him do. Like, really? nah, 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 nah. Yeah, if we were in the wild, which is where I take everything in my mind, if we were in the wild, they would just be along with us helping us hunt and
0: right. build stuff. Yeah, it is sad, Western culture is, is, the clan breaks up pretty early and they never get back together, kind of <laughs> sad. They break up the band and yes, there's the they cardinal do. sin. Yes. <laughs>
1: Let's put the band back together.
0: Thank you for Thank you for not only coming in here and challenging everything I asked you. Sorry. <laughs> but but for writing this book and giving me um, a way to look through your eyes at the way your career has been. You've always spoken your mind and I've really enjoyed getting to know you.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed the questions even as I challenged them. I thought they were really the kind of questions about the book that then can be, then we can a springboard for like a really good discussion. So thank you.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Hey folks that's our show thanks for listening you know maybe this is a good time to pull out some liz fair records and dive right into her career and be sure to read her book horror stories because it's a great read i mean parts of it are a really tough read it hurts to read how hard the music industry was for her back then and it's certainly a triumph that she's still making music and lived to tell her tale but it's a great read so check that out and listen we have a special treat for you next week I don't want to spoil the surprise, but let's just say it involves some holiday magic and some serious looking back into the off-camera archives. See you next time, Off Camera.